Nice one, mate. Yeah, whereabouts are you? Uh, Austria. Austria? Oh, fair play. You're living there or are you just working there at the minute? Oh, mate, I've built a house out here. Wow, okay. This is the studio sort of space put together. Oh, amazing. Yeah, man. How long have you been over there? Uh, 2000 and... 16 so yes six years ah oh, class what took you over there why austria um my well uh i can only remember the word in german now uh fiance <laughs> we, met, we met in london um she's she's austrian and um she she wanted to come back out here because london's just ridiculously expensive so then i followed about six months later after she left and yeah and you, li- <laughs> and you literally built a house literally built a house um that was very hands-on with it all as well pretty much every every step of the way i was down and dirty with it all it's something i never envisaged myself doing but um yeah i mean it's been fun but also very very long and quite a lot of money, obviously, as well. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, the, the, the spot we're in, I mean, I don't know if you can see see the view out, out the window or not. It's just... Yeah, it's pretty green, pretty nice. Yeah, it's, just, it's a proper different world. But, I mean, I'm still going over to the UK to do sort of songwriting sessions and stuff. But it wasn't through COVID. For, for two years, I didn't get over because of potential of not getting back into Austria, not being a citizen. There's always a risk that, you know, they could change, close the borders again, which they did a few times. So for two years, I was just here. But I still go to London and stuff normally. I have been going this year. And when I get there, it's just like completely different world. And you're sort of really up for it. You're really infused by the buzz of it. And then when I come back here, you really appreciate how chill it is. It's here again. So it's nice being able to hop between the two worlds. Yeah, yeah. I bet it's nice being able to avoid the Brexit nonsense as well. Well, I mean, the Brexit nonsense actually made my life a bit more difficult. Um, you know, to, being a, a non-EU member here, I had to go through, jump through some hoops and stuff and to get a Rodweiss Rodkarte. <laughs> right, uh, okay. Red, red and white of Austria card to to legally reside here and then I have to get another one in, in five years and that'll then last 10 years and I should just get married it'd be a lot easier <laughs> but yeah like just take us back to the beginning really like just reading you formed the band around Nambuka is that right because we had Laura Marsh on a while ago who's kind of talking about the little oh, scene yeah. that was going on there um so yeah and I've I went a couple of times, yeah. So, not really talked about it too much, though. What, Nambuka? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I met uh, Dave, the drummer, and um, Jay down at the garage, bottom of Holloway Road. But then they were running this night um, called Sensible Sundays. 
or it was an afternoon which ran into the evening. And it's just kind of an open stage for people to go up and do what they want. And they were just like running the promotions there and living living above it. So I just started going to that and then really got to know the guys properly. And then um, my girlfriend at the time worked behind the bar in there. And through her doing a play acting, I met Bryn, bass player. Then um, he was doing this lighting, sound and lighting for her, her play in Cratch End. And then me and Bryn would always be at uh, Nambuka. And that's where we saw Rob. He was playing at Sensible Sundays. Uh, event and yeah he just didn't get off the stage was just playing all Bob Dylan stuff for ages and our girlfriends were all saying he's really cute as well so we're like right, <laughs> we'll have him and yeah we did our first gig there um did our first co-writing session up, upstairs above Nambuka and yeah I mean it was just it was just the home for the band until the bloody thing burnt down <laughs> yeah and we kind of what year was this? Were you kind of like inspired by what was going on? That was 2004. Okay. Um, when we all met. Um, yeah, 2004, massively into The Strokes and then subsequently The Libertines and Franz Ferdinand. Um, I mean, I'd always been in bands, but when, when The Strokes came out, that really gave me a massive impetus to actually form a band again. And then the Libertine slowly <clears throat> fueled it even more. I, you know, those two bands were so exciting. And I think they really kicked it all off. Um, that was a, they, they were a huge driving force behind wanting to get band going, but also just, you know, the sound, just a, a grimy little four piece with two guitars. You know, the template that the Beatles had long well established decades earlier and it's still still the best thing yeah I was going to say like the style of the music in the band was that music that you played before in bands or was it kind of a new bit of a new sound it wasn't miles different from, from bands I'd had previously um, my band at school was called Marvel which was yeah it was an indie band you know we were inspired by our likes of Oasis and Supergrass and stuff like that on Radiohead and yeah it's just still energetic guitar based you know the Libertines were inspired by, by Oasis as well when they I mean it's I think, I think it's all sort of come through through a similar sort of world similar thread um but they were just the latest ones to give it a big flag that was wave, waving make you want to get involved with it again um but yeah, it was definitely an influence on the stuff I was writing. But I wouldn't say it changed it that much from anything I've been doing before that. I mean, it's one of the two of the songs we did with the Holloways I'd actually done with my old band pre-Holloways uh, and pre-Strokes, pre-Libertines, uh, Sound of the Sunshine and uh, Reinvent Myself were both, yeah, older songs. So it didn't really influence the, the writing style just gave it a new sort of fire to to fuel it yeah i know what you mean yeah and was already like a you know mentioned nambuka was already a bit of a ready-made scene to become a part of kind of thing yeah absolutely i mean it was quite an odd scene really because nambuka was really disconnected you know it wasn't part of east london it wasn't part of the camden thing 
you know, Holloway Road was a bit of a bit, of, a bit out of the way and didn't really have a lot of other things around there. Um, you know, there were a couple of other bits down at the bottom of Holloway Road, I'll say there's the garage and you had um, the place underneath the famous cock. What was it called? God, what it was called. What, the station? No, it was um, a little venue and Art Rocker used to put nights on in there. But yeah, yeah, there were a few bits down there, but up at that end of Holloway, there wasn't really anything else. So it was, it was quite interesting that there was this real hub was that so many people went to and yeah we just tapped into that and it was sort of a ready-made crowd and gang and it sort of formed the whole Holloway's family you know all, all, all the people we became friends with would always be like the hardcore at our gigs and that would like bring in people who they were friends with as well so yeah it was definitely the Holloway's family was was born in in, in Nambuka and we were able to build on that all around London and then subsequently UK. Hmm. And how quickly were you like playing with the likes of Baby Shambles and other bands of that time? Well, we, was, we hadn't done a gig and then um, we were driving back from a rehearsal. We used to rehearse sometimes in Stoke Newington. And uh, Dave got a call from uh, Gemma, who was Baby Shambles' drummer at the time. And they'd been, they were supposed to play uh, some part of some festival at Hammersmith Apollo, I think it was, and they were late or something, so they'd been kicked off the bill, and they needed somewhere to play. So they called Dave and said, "Can you know, can we come and play in Nambuka?" And I was just like, "Right, well, well we're we're supporting them then. So they're just gonna come and set up and play. Like it's just gonna be packed. So like, let's let's jump on." And Dave was like, "No, we're not ready. We've never done a gig. We're not ready to do it." I was like, "Yeah, we fucking are doing it." So <laughs> yeah, we we just like introduced ourselves to the to the the lineup, the last minute lineup, and played to an absolutely packed Nambuka, and uh, yeah, it was amazing. That's it. Yeah, like those early Baby Shambles gigs always look very exciting. Must oh, be yeah. great, great to be a part of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, and um, yeah, Libertines and Baby Shambles, all that that early, those early gigs. I remember seeing Libertines at um, the Barfly. It's just after Pete got out of prison the first time, and it was amazing. Ah, uh, yeah. I think had Dan from Black Wire on, I think they might have supported that night as well. Black Wire did support. Yeah. And I wasn't a massive fan of them. They didn't have drums, did they? <laughs> no, I think they had a drum machine, yeah. And it was quite shouty, wasn't it? I'm trying to remember them properly now. I never got into them. They had that one massive, like, indie night song, that Hard to Love, Easy to Lay one. Oh, yes. That rings remember that? Yeah. That was theirs, to be fair. I think some bands you click with you, and some, some bands don't, do they? And it just it just never connected with me for some reason. And then yeah, just other bands like obviously the Ricks. Um, yes. Very linked with this podcast, and we've had Lassa on, and you know other bands like that. Were you able to form good relationships with them, kind of thing? Yeah, we went on tour with the Rakes. Um They were great. I loved those guys. So, the, so many good songs, and he was a brilliant. From what was he called again? The front man, Alan. Alan, that was it. With all his like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'd weird. love to see them play again. It'd be amazing. Yeah, I mean, I, we were supposed to do that tour a couple of years ago, but COVID cancelled it. Um, it was supposed to be us, Future Heads, and um, Reverend and the Makers, but 
I would love to do like go back on tour with the bands we used to tour with, which was the Rakes, uh, Young Knives. Used to love watching those guys; they were brilliant. Um, and Mystery Jets, they, they they were like, you know, playing with those guys, all those three bands. It was a real honor. You know, always enjoyed watching them every night. So it'd be great, yeah. It'd be great to do a reunion tour with with those guys. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then just in terms of labels and stuff, like that's obviously a very kind of hot scene at the time. <laughs> like how quickly we get an interest in terms of that. I mean, we started gigging towards autumn 2004 and we'd signed our deal just over a year later. So within, yeah, within the first, I guess, six months or something, we, we were already talking with with quite a few different labels. Um, I can't remember all of them exactly. Hook was our, like, the second closest option for us, and we ended up going with TVT, which, in hindsight, the way it worked out was probably not <laughs> the best thing, but it, it felt like the, the best thing to do at the time. That's all you can do, isn't it? So what, why, what happened with it? Um, well, we were... You know, we, we, we'd gone like this through 2006, 2007. We had like the second most played song on Radio 1. Through 2007, we played the other stage at Glastonbury and Enemy were like going to be the biggest band in the world and all this stuff. And we were down at Sawmills recording the second album and just like where Supergrass and Oasis and Muse had all been. It's like fucking yes, making it. And then um, two weeks into, it's like a residential month-long recording session. We were staying down there. We got a call saying the uh, TVT had gone bust because there'd been some other label had put some music out with Pitbull, of all people. And TVT had sued and then spent this money that they'd won and then there was an appeal and then they had to give their money back and they didn't have it, so they went into administration. And we became frozen as an asset. We didn't get through our advances. And then we had this album that we, we ended up paying for ourselves, which was still owned by the label and we couldn't like get it to another label because no one wanted to get involved with this messy court case with TVT who had a real hard ass boss. Um, so yeah, so 2008 for us was just the complete opposite to 2007. We were just like stuck and there were loads of like family things happened all, all in the same space while we were down at sawmills. Um, my girlfriend at the time had an abortion and her dad died and my auntie fell over in, in Little Woods and she had osteoporosis and then after that never left the house again. It's all happening like two weeks. It's absolutely mental. And then everyone got so frustrated through, through the year, got this great album sitting there, we couldn't do anything with it. Rob started doing another band because he was so frustrated that we weren't able to be doing anything creatively and, and not really tour because we, we didn't have the new material to tour. And yeah, then Nambuka burned down at the end of that year just to put the icing, cherry on the icing of an already shitty cake. Um, and then to start of 2008, Rob, Rob and Dave left. Um, I don't know enough. And then me and Bryn, yeah, then me and Bryn, Bryn tried to keep it going. But yeah, if we'd been with a different label, we might have, we might still be going. Right, yeah, see, so like you had a lot of momentum leading up to that kind of thing yeah yeah and then it was just like to quote lewis capaldi you know pulled the rug yeah yeah so it's interesting because obviously talking to different bands on here it's usually 
the opposite where it kind of fades out and then they get dropped but you didn't even get dropped it just it's just a bit of a mess yeah just sort of we were just victims of of circumstance you know we we were doing well did loads of radio play and the album was was doing well and gigs have been great and then yeah just all the momentum was was taken bloody ridiculous yeah fair enough um but yeah, just going back to that earlier time, like we had Mark Bowman on a while ago. And oh, yeah. I think he's potentially our biggest fan. <laughs> so, I yeah, mean, man. how worse was that having someone of his kind of notoriety as a journalist, like really backing you kind of thing? Yeah, it was amazing. I mean, when we saw the write up he'd given us in the NME, it was, you know, mind blowing saying that the best darn guitar, indie rock, pop album of the year or something, he called it, I shit you not, you know, I'll never forget reading it and um, saying the heartbreak anthem of the decade in Lonely Face and, you know, growing up trusting in the enemy and finding all our music through the enemy. So to see yourself on a double page spread in the enemy with such superlatives as that was just the stuff dreams are made of. The funny thing was that probably wasn't quite as exciting as the, as the very first time just our name was just in in the enemy. It wasn't an article. It was just what's on the enemy stereo. And it was just like when we put out our first uh, vinyl release through Pure Groove Records, who we were also on Holloway Road. Um, and yeah, we were just we were in the enemy, and it was just like we're in the enemy. It was just like the coolest thing. And the first time we were on Radio One as well, when Zane Lowe played us, I'll, I'll never forget. We were all together at my flat in uh, in Highgate, and. Uh, it was just mental moment. We were just like, ah, all of us going mental. And then we watched Braveheart afterwards. <laughs> I'll never forget. <laughs> so funny. <laughs> uh, and then, yeah, just in terms of recording, like, you know, you say you, you signed within a year. Have you done much recording up to that point before the album? Yeah, we've done a fair bit. We've done um, a session with Jenny Jenny's dad. I, I, ne I never remember her actual name. She was just called Jenny Jenny. And she was a girl who was always at our gigs and around Nambuka. And she put nights on. Um, and her dad was a producer. And we'd done a version of Lonely Face, which was an up, like, really fast version with, like, big guitars and stuff. And I think we did London Town, uh, Unhappiness of Penis, maybe. I can't remember. And then we did quite a lot of... Um, bits and bobs for other labels, like little sessions for other labels. And then we did the most things we did were with Tristan Ivor Me, who produced all our B-sides and he also did the second album. And he's gone on to, to do like Frank Turner stuff and he, he's now managing the, the lottery winners. They're a really cool band. Um, and yeah, and he's, I wanted him to be in the band at first. So he, he was one of the first people I met also at the garage down the bottom of Holloway Road. We were at the bar and some guy had pushed in or something. And I sort of said something and then let, tried to let Tristan have his place. It's like he was first. And he was like, exactly the kind of guy I've been looking for, Mush. It's from Pompey, he's from Portsmouth, it's all Mush. And he was like, some with some fucking manners that everyone's cunts around here, mate. <laughs> <laughs> and then, so me and him hit it off straight away. And I, I really wanted him to be in the band, but um, he already had his band called Girl Kicker, who ended up supporting us quite a bit. Um, but Trist is great, and uh, 
you know, all the uh, vinyl releases we put out, like Happiness and Penniless, uh, we did Generator Two Left Feet, and um, oh, what was it? I think it was What's What's the Difference? It might have been. Um, we did we did all with with Tristan on vinyl before we'd signed with um, TBT, and we put them out to Pure Groove. Did he record the album then? He didn't record the first album. He recorded the second album. Right. The first okay. Album was recorded with Clive Langer and Alan Wynne Stanley, who'd done like Dex's Midnight Runners and Elvis Costello and Madness. Um. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting working with those guys. He he gave us the uh, the key change for Fit for a Fortnight, which it's he, he, he took from uh, I think it was the key change from our house because <laughs> it's like. You know, we'd never thought of going there because we like the clip for Fortnite was in here. It was just like, it's like, and then it's like, and then we did Fortnite, and we just kept it in the same key. But it was like, no, you should do this key change, which we've managed, which was to go. It was like, what? How do you get? And why would you go to C sharp for me? And it was just like, it really opened our minds to some really cool moves. Really great writer. He did that uh, shipbuilding song with Elvis Costello. He wrote that, which is oh, a masterpiece. Yeah, it's really good writing with those guys. Um, I think I, I was fighting for Tristan to do the first album because I really liked the the sort of sound he'd got. It was really sort of warm and 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 gritty, and I felt like it it captured what we were about. And you know, it was our mate and. We did everything with mates. Our mates did the artwork, our mates did the photography. It was all a family and I wanted to sort of keep it in the family. Um, so the sound of the first time, I, I always felt it was a bit light. It didn't punch as much as we did live. And like I said, they brought a lot to the table and, and it sounded great, you know, great producers, but it just wasn't quite as dirty as, as I was hoping for. That's kind of kind of why I wanted Tris to do it, but um, yeah, as I say, also learned a lot about writing through working with those guys. So swings and roundabouts, I guess. <laughs> yeah, it's interesting like talking to people about you know early producers that kind of can inform the sound moving forward, or like you say, the songwriting techniques. Like, can yeah. be quite a formative experience. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, lo loads from Tristan as well. Um, he had a lot of great ideas sonically and arrangement wise and yeah i mean i do production myself now and most of it is through stuff i learned from working with trist so yeah it's great it was a great time and like yeah we mentioned you know mark Beaumont, and if we've not covered it already like what was it like seeing that review of the album you said it was wasn't as good as seeing your first mention but yeah, I it don't know what it is. First, first time you get in the enemy, the first time you're on Radio 1, it's like, you know, it's like a made it moment. I mean, it, that was, like I say, something else in that double page spread. And like I said, the things he'd said about us. And, you know, we'd met him and he'd, he'd interviewed us and didn't realise he was so, so into us. You know, I don't remember being aware of it. And then seeing that, that article was like, whoa. He absolutely loves us. Um, it was a big, it was a huge surprise. I didn't see it coming until, you know, until we opened the enemy and I, I saw it in there. Yeah, it, it blew my socks off. And, uh, you know, I've, I've looked back on it many times 
you know, got all, all the stuff in a box somewhere, all the Holloway stuff, memorabilia. And um, and it's funny, after that, the years subsequent through the Holloway's sort of time and post-Holloway's, me and Mark have ended up being really good mates. Like, whenever I come over to London, we always end up going for a few drinks. We were in Soho last time I was there. It took me to this. We just got, when everyone just had cocktails, it cost absolute fortune, cocktails in Soho. There's this little bar where you go downstairs and it's got individual booths and it's playing soft porn from the 70s and you've got curtains <laughs> and where they give you drinks to. Hilarious. But yeah. <laughs> That's Mark Beaumont. More rock and roll than all the bands. <laughs> yes. And never forget the time we played at Proud Galleries and in Camden and he'd been to see us and um, found out the next... It was hammered. Like He'd been with us all day and it, it was so drunk and he just disappeared and I found out the next day he'd... Yeah, barely made it home. He'd fallen down the escalator at Camden, and um, the the guy, like the guards in the on the underground, were like, "You've you've got to go, go exit the station. You're not in no state." And he's like, "Well, I've fallen all the way down to the bottom. I might as well get on the train." <laughs> <laughs> so that was his logic, which he managed to convince them to let him get on the train. He's like, "Well, if I go back up again, you know, I might fall back down again. So let's just let me get on the train." <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode of 22 Grand Pod. If Naughty's guitar music is your thing, then you might enjoy our Patreon page, where for £3 a month you will get access to the following series. The Naughty's Deep Dive, where we go through the likes of the Stalking Pete Doherty documentary in painful detail. My favourite 2000s album, where patrons and other guests come on to talk about their favourite album of the era. Legend or Landfill, in which we go through Enemy's top 10 albums of each year from 2001 and see if we think they are indeed legendary or for the landfill. Unsigned Stories, where we chat to bands that didn't quite make it in terms of signing that elusive record deal. We also have Fan Stories, where I talk to people about their memories and opinions on all things Naughty's Indie. You also get early access to any main podcast episodes and it's also worth checking out the YouTube page where you can see extended video versions of the interviews as well as plenty of other bits of commentary and opinion. All links are in the description. Now back to the pod. Yeah, I was thinking, um, I actually remember when you played in Hull uh, at the uni because I think we got a kickabout beforehand, like us and the Paddingtons. <laughs> yes, that sounds about right. But which venue was that? Hull Uni. I remember, I remember playing um, Yo-Yo Club for Andy, that welly. Oh, uh, yeah. I remember playing there. That one always sticks in the head. And the first time we played there was with, um, not at the Welly, we played the first venue we ever played, I can't remember the name of it, it was with Towers London. Oh, wow, okay. Um, oh, the Silhouettes that would have been, I think. Might have been. Yeah. No, no, it's like, was it some boxing place? Uh, not Ringside, surely. Yeah, Ringside, yeah. <laughs> that was it. No way. Yeah, that was the first time we played Hull. Oh, right. London. That's next to Welly, yeah. That's funny how I remember that, isn't it? That's like a boxing place to sort of stick in your head. Towers London, what was that like then? Because I've just recently interviewed the directors for their new film. Um, so yeah, what, what were they like to play a gig with? Raucous. I mean, you know, that, that whole sort of show and bravado they used to put on was, was quite a spectacle, wasn't it? I mean, they were great lads. I mean, it's funny because, you know, Donnie on... Um, uh, never mind the Buzzcocks was was so infamous, wasn't he, for his sort of <laughs> all his bravado? <laughs> but you know, it's brilliant. I mean, you, know, you don't want bands to be boring, do you? 
No, Mate. definitely. That's what watching the film. It was like, yeah, it was compelling. <laughs> yeah. No, they were great. It was, it was it was a good tour, I and mean, it was a slightly odd pairing. It felt like into stylistically, we were just on the same label. They were on TBT as well. Um, because a number of times I've had to sort of say to people, Donny's actually a really sound guy, lovely lad. But you know, just embrace the rock and roll spirit, and you know that's what their music was about. That's what the show was about. So you kind of it does shape your character in a way. I mean, you be, you become a part of a band, and the band sort of shapes you as much as you shape the band. Yeah, like big part of the identity kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I get that. And yeah, I was going to mention that Buscocks episode because you were on it, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was on the other team. <laughs> It's funny because it, I think we must have filmed for about three hours was, and then they edited it down. It was, it was really long. Um, I remember throwing a pencil at Donny and I, I, they didn't put that in the show. Maybe it was too, <laughs> too violent. But it, it said something and I just like, lobbed the pencil over at him. <laughs> I'm pretty sure I got him as well. I didn't get Jupiter, so that would have been regrettable. <laughs> must be quite nice when you got Sam and I'm still there, and then you've got Donny to take all the heat. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it was great. No, I, I didn't get any, I didn't get ripped into or any embarrassing questions asked at all. So, yeah, it was good. It was really good fun. It's funny though, because I remember there's a couple of moments where I managed to get a couple of big laughs off the audience, I managed to say a couple of things that were reasonably witty and I was like yes come on and then they didn't put me in the show (laughs) it's funny because um Luke Pritchard from the Kooks I don't know if you saw it you posted a clip yes you did yeah Yeah, my girlfriend showed me it the other day that was funny well it's just what did Donnie call him crap or something yeah he's crap (laughs) (laughs) and you were like yeah that's one take on it or something yeah yeah. (laughs) oh man it's funny the kooks, the kooks, the kooks. Think about the kooks. Think what, what is the uh, general opinion of the kooks from the indie world? Yes. Crap. Oh god. <laughs> well, well, that's one side of it. Yeah. <laughs> I should explain. Donny is a punk. Yeah. Yeah. Did you mention that you had a good Liam Gallagher story? Me? Yeah, I did have a good Liam Gallagher story. Yeah. A couple of good Liam Gallagher stories, actually. Um, yes. I mean, it's just funny because Oasis were like what properly got me wanting to do music. Um, I'd already always had a little crappy nylon encore guitar from Argos that I'd, my dad had got me after I'd seen Back to the Future and I'd, Marty had played Johnny Be Good and I was like, I want a guitar. And then I just got this guitar and a, this little book with Michael wrote, wrote the boat ashore and nothing rock and roll in it at all. But then when I heard Oasis, it was the day I was working on a fruit and vegetable and I used to have to trim the collars in the morning. And my mate gave me a cucumber to cut in half for this old lady who turned up really early for a cucumber. And I just like took it off him, sliced it in half and went straight through my finger. And I, I don't know if you can still see, I've still got a scar. Right, yeah, just about, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I, said, I had to go to the hospital and they said, yeah, you've got to go home, you can't be getting dirt on that. And I went home and Oasis were on the, on the chart show with Supersonic. And I was like, what is this? It just that blew my mind. So with a bandage on my finger, picked up my little nylon guitar and 
figured out I could play melodies. I think I must have heard the do 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 the supersonic riff and thought I want to play not just chords and realised I could play melodies and I figured out last of the summer wine and old McDonald had a farm and went into the school on the Monday and just said to the guys in the music who were doing music courses, I was like, We're gonna form a band, it's gonna be ace. And then they didn't really take me seriously and I tried to get bands going and ended up like starting bands with different people instead of sticking with me. But then like six months later or something, we ended up selling out the Charlotte in Leicester when I'd like got a bit better and convinced them that I was their their best option as a sort of front man and writer and stuff. So that's where it all started and having that scar as that reminder. <laughs> but yeah, then all years later we were doing um it's Holloway's acoustic with Noah Gallagher and Paul Weller. Oh wow. The, a Coco, and it was Russell Brand's night. He was doing it for a cancer charity. And, um, yeah, we would, like, try and play our set, and I think Lim had been, like, up in the stalls or something at Coco. And those people going, Liam, Liam, Liam. And, like, we were trying to play our set, so I just, like, just stopped the song and started shouting with him. He's like, Liam, Liam. I was like, yeah, like, look, I'm a massive fan as well. I get it, but can we play our set, please? <laughs> It's like, so that, I think, you know, they, they did sort of like calm down a bit after that and let us play. And then um, it appeared in our, in our dressing room afterwards. It was just like looking for the toilets. And I was like, I think I sort of said something about you interrupted our gig with <laughs> everyone chanting your name. And um, then it was a few years later, we were at a pub in Hampstead and Liam was in there. And he kept looking over and like sort of nodding his head as if to say, all right. And then eventually he came over and started talking to us. I'm really friendly, like, and I was like, oh, I met you years ago at, at Coco when um, Noel was playing. It was Paul Weller and stuff. So, no, never been in that building in my life. <laughs> it must have been my double or my triple. It's like, oh, me, mate. I was like, yeah, it was you. It's like you came in our dressing room looking at the toilets. No, mate. I was like, it's Russell Brand's night. I've like, never met that man. <laughs> Yeah, but it, yeah, you know, obviously was him. And Russell Brand <laughs> even said something on the radio about when when they'd met or something. Yeah, I don't know why either he'd just completely forgotten or he was just playing the wind up. <laughs> Probably the latter. That's good. That he's like, uh, I think Tom met him in the uh, Camden pub and it didn't go too well. <laughs> yeah, I remember Tom always saying he had a bit of beef with him. <laughs> Yeah, I think he he um it didn't look too favorably on, on a lot of those indie bands, but it sounds like you did all right with him. So did he like say something bad about the Paddingtons? Is that what it was about? Yeah, it's something weird and like the press or something. Um, I don't know. I think it's <laughs> one of those he said, she said kind of things. I think right. But uh, Liam took offence to it, and then Tom's mate from school had to step in or something. <laughs> And threatened to battle Liam, so Funny. just calmed it down. But yeah, like enemy awards as well. I always like to ask about those because obviously massive events at the time. Um, what were they like to go to? Were they just another night, or was it kind of I don't a big think deal? We ever, I don't think we ever went to any. Oh, really? Somehow. Ah, uh, fair enough. You know, given given the review we got, you know, we also got single of the week for Generator, and you know, really good, some huge like live reviews 
and what they said about the album. So I don't know how we didn't ever end up. Or if we did, I certainly don't remember. <laughs> Fair play. But no, I don't, you know, I'm pretty sure I would remember it. <laughs> then it's just bled into one. Maybe, or maybe, <laughs> maybe I was ill. Maybe, maybe Bryn or someone else went. I don't know, but I can't imagine that I wouldn't have gone if there was one, if we were invited. Yeah, yeah. But you played some massive festivals, obviously. Um, you mentioned Glastonbury. And yeah, is there any that stand out? Like the ones in Japan must have been pretty mad. Yeah, I was just about to say, yeah, we did um, Summer Sonic. I remember we were playing on a beach and um, it was just so hot. And they just had these massive like water cannons that are just like spraying all the fans, just like keeping cool. That was mental. And uh, yeah, and on one of the other stages while we were there, we played just before Sean Lennon, which was quite surreal. It's like John Lennon's son, like just hanging out with his backstage. <laughs> that was really weird. And then um, the maddest thing was we threw, flew from um, Osaka to, uh, to Tokyo. And on the plane, it was just rock and roll airlines. And it, we, were, we were like, we sat on it. It was like, if this goes down, there aren't going to be any good bands left in the world. It's just like <laughs> the whole plane was just full of all the bands. It's just like Us, Hot Chip, Kasabian, Suede, uh, The Enemy, um, Manic Street Preachers, just like full of all these huge bands. It's just like fucking hell. <laughs> it's such a surreal thing. Yeah, um, I think I was reading a story about Kasabian kicking you out of your seats or something. Did that yeah, happen? This was brilliant. We, we flew out um, to Japan business class, which was just amazing. You, you get these huge, like, reclining wide leather seats with like a dressing gown and like comfy slippers and stuff and amazing food and you can like proper lay back and sleep and stuff and when we were due to fly back we were all proper hanging the day to fly back after the last night in japan and we were at the check-in and she was like give us our tickets and their economy and we're like no 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 we we're going business class. It's like we're with the Holloways. It's like we're with JVC Records. They flew us out. We were in JVC in Japan. They flew us out business class. We're going back business class. No, no, no. You're you're going back economy. It's like no, we're not. So it's like upgraders. And then it was going to be like sixteen hundred per person to upgrade it to business class. So we got on the plane and we the business class was at the front and it was completely empty and we were just like Let's just fucking sit down. So we, we all sat down and like just like got the like the dressing gown on and the uh, the eye covers, eye patches, and just like pulled them down and we were just like getting comfy and then just heard this voice. It's like, uh, I think you're in our seats, lads. And it was it's the Kasabian boys. And when the funny thing is, we flew out next to Kasabian in business class on the way out as well. I'm like, oh, sorry, lads. So we stood up, let them have their seats, and there was still some free free. We're like, we'll just sit back down then. And then um gets to like finishing checking, finishing their uh, boarding and stuff. We're, like, we're all like looking under our iPads at each other. Going, yes. <laughs> and then we take off and you just think, yes, we fucking made it. Done it. And then it was like an hour into the flight. And it's just like this really genteel little Japanese voice going, excuse me, you're in wrong seat. And I'm like, no, I'm in business class. Leave me alone. I'm sleeping. It's like, no, 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 you're in wrong seat. And I was like, no, 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 you got it wrong. So it's obviously my seat. No one else is in it. And uh, yeah, 
they weren't having it. So they we got marched in these like slippers and dressing gowns. The Kasabian boys were pissing themselves. <laughs> marched back into economy class, going from all this space to this like cramped little space. And we were all just like devastated. And then we realized Rob hadn't come back. And like if, if anyone was ever going to be jammy, it would be Rob. Well, that fucking skipper has done it again, and he's managed to get away with it. And then it was about 20 minutes later, Rob comes back and we're like, hey, hey. I got him as well. Yes. Yes, at least you've been business class. I don't think I've ever been. Yeah, it was good, man. It was hard going back into economy class after, after I sat in the, in the massive roomy chairs for an hour, especially when you're hanging. So, yeah. yeah. Funny story then. Quality. Um yeah, we'll move on to some uh like fan questions that people have sent in. And you know, got Cole previous guest Cole was asking about Rob. Um you know, like how how difficult it all was really and how you reflect on it kind of thing. Yeah, I mean it was mad. Um I mean when the Holloways sort of when Rob and, and David left, um I'd kind of been arguing with Rob for not like focusing on the Holloways um, and starting this other band. So I got his frustrations and why he was feeling like he needed to do it, but I felt like you know, it wasn't helping our situation. We needed to be focusing and pulling together. So then there was a period of time, a year or two, where we sort of barely spoke and uh, the little bits of arguments about stuff. And then um, as time passed by, and the water under the bridge and we'd sort of bumped into each other a couple of nights and just you know remembered that we were good mates and that that was all sort of everything that had happened was wasn't any of our faults and the frustrations were just yeah matter of circumstance rather than personal and um yeah started being good mates again and um he, he came and sort of played a couple of my nights i was i was putting on and I remember we went to like a couple of little film things together and like music films, there's some little festival things on. And um, it was just great being mates again. But we still didn't see loads of each other. We kind of had different social circles and he was living in a different part of London. I was north and he was down sort of more that sea way. And, um, you know, and I was doing my thing and he had his, his bands. And then by, the, by that time it was Hairs he was doing after he'd done musical differences and um i didn't actually know um what was going on until until he died i didn't know that the, that he'd, he'd had an issue um and yeah i remember i'll never forget again all these things happening at the same time i i was on the phone to my mum in hospital because she'd had a f- fallen off fucking ladder cleaning the caravan and banged her head and I was on the phone to her and I saw Bryn and Dave calling me in the space of like two minutes and I thought I just knew straight away that they're both suddenly calling me around the same time I thought something's happened to Rob and yeah I got off the phone to my mum and my girlfriend's um, grandma was in hospital at the same time as like I said these things just always seem to come along at the same time and yeah just called Bryn and, and Dave back and just they told me, I was like, I knew, I knew something had happened when I saw you calling and Dave explained to me what, what had been going on and how it happened. And, uh, 
yeah, it's just a massive shock. And I just remember going up to Hampstead Heath when, when the Holloways were forming. Um, after the first time me and Robert jammed together and played at Nambuka, I saw him in Hampstead. I was just going for a walk around Hampstead. He was just busking with his violin. I was like, yeah, Rob, you're all right, mate. And then um, we just like, <laughs> he had some um, magic mushrooms with him. I'd, I'd never tried them. And um, I was like, go on and I'll try it. And then we would just like, went for a walk up around Hampstead Heath. And I just remember the grass looking purple. And then I was going to this pub and we couldn't find a, a guy's toilet. There's only a women's toilet in there. It was really, there must have been a men's toilet, but we couldn't find it. And uh, yeah, that was one of, um, some of my favorite days. Never forget that. that was when first time me and him really sort of bonded. So yeah, when I found out, I just went up back up to Hampstead where, um, where we had that day, and I just sat up there and just like with my guitar, played all the all the Holloway songs, and then wrote. It was just a poem to begin with. I, I ended up putting some music to it, and I have recorded it, and I keep keep thinking about putting it out. Um, played to my girlfriend recently. She's like, "This is really good." So I think I will put it out. Um, it's kind of you know saying careful careful where you get into basically you know don't go don't go down that road it's, it's it's never a good one um and then yeah subsequently i pops into my dreams quite often and it's always like it's as if he's visiting me because it's always like he's talking to me and saying you know keep keep doing this it's not like it's a, a flashback or I do have those dreams as well, where we're back on stage bouncing off each other and stuff. But I do have dreams where he just seems to sort of come along and just say, yeah, no, keep keep doing the music thing. You're doing it right. And it's just, yeah, it's as if he visits. It's, it's a bizarre, bizarre thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, I was, I was, it was a shame that I, I wasn't close enough with him around that time when he was sort of getting into it and if I'd known you need, you can't help but think would I have been able to sort of steer him away from it all a little bit um I don't know these things go through your head but can't think about it that way can you no no I know what you're saying about dreams as well like we had a friend that passed away quite young and it's strange how he just appears sometimes and it's not always like how you'd expect him to appear. I don't know how to explain it, but, um, and my dad as well, he'll just pop up in different kind of forms. <laughs> um, yeah, it's strange how we, we deal with it, I guess. Yeah. It's not always a, the same path, is it? No, it's not. But it, I mean, um, I think, I, I think I spoke to Dave about it and I think he said something similar. You know, so maybe, you know, maybe there is like some afterlife and they can just sort of pop in and visit you in your dreams. Who knows? I never say mm. never. Yeah. It's nice, yeah. nice to think that, that that is the case, isn't it? No, I agree, yeah, definitely. I mean, there's there's got to be more to it, aren't there, I guess. <laughs> I suppose well, I'm a bit agnostic so. in that sense. Yeah. I'm not very open-minded. I'm sort of anything's possible. Got a specific question from DB on Patreon. Um he says, ask Alfie if he ever did find that slower version of Happiness and Penniless, the one that's not on the album version. I've been looking at, looking for it for years. We had a brief conversation about it on Instagram a year ago. Yes, we did. Um, I have got a disc somewhere. 
It would that would have been on the original vinyl releases. It would have been the one we did at Metropolis with with Tristan and uh, Rich Wilkinson, and it was Happiness of Pendless, and then one of Rob's. I think it was What's the Difference or oh, what was the other one that was similar tempo to What's the Difference. We're gonna have to Google it, but um, that's where that one would have been. And I, my dad put everything onto everything we'd done onto CDs. Like he'd put things on vinyl, put them all on CDs, and given them to me. So I have got it somewhere, but um, so I need to dig it out. But I'm, I'm going to Google what that was now. Happiness and painless. But you carry on, mate. I'm going to do <laughs> to you. UK sound advice on Twitter just says. Uh, is he any good at baking? I don't know if that's a private joke. Any good at baking? <laughs> trying to think what well, if there if there could be a joke. Um, I've, not, I've not really done any baking. I, I cook a lot. <laughs> I do a lot of cooking. Um, yeah, fair. I thought there might be something to that, but it's just a bit of a random one, I think. <laughs> and then, yeah, someone else mentioned that Jeremy, Be- Jeremy Beadle was at your gigs back in the day? Yeah, he's, um, he was my girlfriend's, at the time, dad. And the, he, he passed away at the same time when we were down at Sawmills. That's, that's what I say, it was just... Oh, uh, right, okay. And you know, it, was, it was mad with Jeremy Beadle because he was like voted one second most hated person after Saddam Hussein in, in national press and stuff like that. And just because he did these you know, practical jokes on people, but you know, they're hilarious. I love those shows. And, um, what people didn't know about him was all the work he did for charity and never made a big thing out of it. You know, a lot of people just do charity to look good, just do it for their own PR thing at half the time. Well, certainly that's part of the reason, but he would do it and not make a thing out of it. He'd, he'd drive up to a village up North for, to do a little thing in a church to about hundred people just to raise money for leukemia and stuff. And the ironic, ironic thing in the end was he ended up dying of leukemia himself, but he, he didn't know he, he was going to get that all those years he was doing, raising money for it. But um, yeah, he, he raised absolutely millions and no one knew about that work he did because he didn't make a song and dance about it. So people sort of didn't know the full, the full stories. He was a really good guy. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, just in terms of how you stayed involved in music, really, like, um, I'm right in thinking you've worked on some music really that's, uh, recently that's got some really good feedback from, like, Six Music and stuff? Yeah, I mean, I've been doing... I mean, I tried to get bands going after the Holloways, but never quite found the right route people, um, you know, getting that recipe. It's very tricky, particularly the, the willingness to commit. That's the real thing. Um, having that focus in the band is, is a huge thing, more than talent, I think. Um, that hunger, I think that's what's kept me going through music all these years. And um, yeah, I've just been doing writing and production. And uh, one of the coolest things that's come out has been uh, the Gemma Rogers album, which was Steve Lamack was just like playing every song from the album. And um, even mentioned the Mercury Music Prize and was saying, I don't normally play all the songs off an album like this, but just it says just this album was just ticking every box for him. And 
so it's you know Steve Lamack again was a hero for us growing up and to have him saying things like that about an album I've been part of writing it's like one of the another great moment sort of like when you get that review in the enemy like with Mark Beaumont and so to still be getting recognized by people you hold in high esteem um you know because it's been it's been tough through covid times trying to keep the writing thing and collaborating and meeting people and networking you know obviously that's all taken a a battering as as live music for everybody as well so to sort of come out fighting a little bit and get things like that going again and um six music also played one of my new projects songs i've got this thing going called fledgling which is a, a collaborative thing i'm releasing songs written in songwriting sessions with other artists and other producers and just putting it out under one name because for whatever reason maybe it's an issue with the label or maybe it's in a wrong time for the artist um some songs even when they're really good not quite not quite right stylistically and not quite right timing wise so they just end up sitting on your computer. So I was like, right, I'm just going to get these out myself. And it's turned into a more of a thing now where I'm asking younger, newer artists, well, not necessarily younger, I hate the ages I'm singing music, just newer artists to come and get involved, get involved with the co-writing community. You know, you release your music through Fledging and then Fledging will get more and more people coming to it as more artists get involved with it. And that exposes each artist involved to a bigger audience and what, what they would on their own and also just connects them to other producers writers and so on in the industry that they wouldn't connect with if they hadn't come into fledging so yeah that's uh, an exciting thing we're about to do the next release for that and um trying to do the contracts in a way that that, that pay out um how i always thought music should distribute money so i always think it's mad if someone does an amazing cover of an unknown song but the writer gets all the sort of radio monies that are generated from it and the, the artist doesn't get anywhere near as much they get a bit through ppl i always think they should be getting a big share of that but also as a writer if something sells loads on the master side like cds or whatever then the writer should also be getting a fair chunk of that and not just the person who's performed it so the way i'm structuring that is everyone is getting a little piece of everything and trying to make it much fairer than the sort of traditional deals that have been done in the past um so yeah it's got a bit of a message attached to it because i've sort of been fighting for a while for better rights for artists and, and writers uh tom gray from gomez does a thing called broken record which is fighting for better rights for musicians from streaming revenues and stuff so something very close to my heart so through that i'm trying to get through that message out there as well hmm yeah, yeah. Quite a few exciting things going on. I'm, I'm going to be doing the Alfie Jackson thing as well. I mean, people just keep saying these songs they've heard of mine that I've written and recorded on my own. They're like, these are amazing. You need to put them out. You, you, you don't sound or look like anyone else. And you're writing about lyrics, writing lyrics about things that no one else is doing. So what, why aren't you doing it? And I just I kind of just thought I'm just a writer now. And I've sort of taken a step away from the artist thing. But it's kind of got to a point where I'm sort of hungry to do it again. And I've got the songs. And I want to be doing something that I'm steering rather than being at the the whim of artists and labels that I've written with. I've, I want things that I can steer myself against. That's why I'm doing Fledgling. That's why I'm doing the Alfie Jackson thing. And why I'm involved with the Gemma Rogers thing because it's definitely a, um, 
I'm not just a writer with that. We do shape the whole sort of ideas of the whole thing together. So, yeah, there are things I'm really excited about. Yes. Yeah, like we mentioned, you know, part of starting the podcast was to find out like, how things have changed. Um, like, how difficult is it to make a living out of music now? It's difficult, man. Um, and especially for writers, because the all the money now is getting generated through Spotify, Apple Music, whatever, through streaming. And the share on the on the publishing side and the writing side is nowhere near not com- comparable to what's generated on the master side. Um, you know, and that's something like I'm trying to address through my fledgling deals, the way they're structured. And um yeah, it's you know, you get songs getting I'm, I've been co write co written on songs I've got hundred million streams, ten million streams and the the amount of royalties I get through as a as a writer are, are quite pitiful. And you know, and for me a lot of things need to change. And um there are some people fighting. Um like I said, Tom Tom Gray from Gomez has been one of them and Chris Bin from Long Pigs. And there are more and more writers sort of saying things on Instagram saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to do sessions unless I'm getting paid up front. And there are people fighting for points on the master side. There are people even talking about having uh, like a 360 sort of share of all incomes that an artist makes. Um, so even f- from the merchandise and stuff, which si- sounds kind of mad up front, but then when you say, well, you wouldn't be selling out these venues without these songs that you've written with these writers. So I kind of get there. there is an argument to that. Something kind of needs to change because it's just going to end up unsustainable. Um, the way things have changed, it's it's not paying out to writers like, like, like it used to. Um, and sort of music has, yeah, sort of lost a lot of its value through through streaming. It's kind of become this free commodity. Um, and the way, you know, you pay £10 subscription monthly, doesn't matter if all you listen to is the Holloways and the Paddingtons, X amount of your money is still going to Ed Sheeran and Adele, even though you're not listening to them, which is just bonkers. It's, it should be what they call a user-centric payment system where your your money is going to who you're listening to. Um, I was talking to a lawyer just before, and he's talking about setting something up, uh, a streaming service. And, you know, I said to him about, for, for me, it would always make more sense. It was more of a pay-as-you-go system. So you sort of stick a tenor on, and every time you listen to a song, it costs you, I don't know, say half a penny or a tenth of a penny. I don't know. But it, your credit goes down as you listen to, to music, and then it's measurable and you know that it's going to the, the artist you're listening to and the music then still has value because you're not just paying for the ability to play music, you're paying each time you listen to music, you know, it, it can still be of a similar value for money for the listener. But I think it's important that listeners and artists feel that their connection through what they're paying is connected through them and not just going to the labels to Spotify and to your Ed Sheeran's when they're not anything to do with what you're listening to. So that all needs needs looking at and sorting out and making fairer and more transparent and yeah, more accurate. Mm. No, it's, it's just interesting. It's cloudy and 
it's just cloudy and wrong at the moment. You know, there's people just skimming it off the top and capitalism. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, definitely sounds a bit broken for sure. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, cheers for your time, mate. We'll just finish on two questions. It was there a high point of the Holloways, and is there anything you would do differently about that time? Um, the high points. I mean, yeah, like I say, that those moments of being on radio one very first time and sort of jumping around the living room and um, gigs wise, you know, playing the second stage at Glastonbury was pretty special. Um, I remember, I think we played, was it Kennedy's or something like that in Dublin? It was just a little bar, but it was rammed and it was our first time in Ireland and the atmosphere was just amazing. Um, and then the Leeds University gig was just in, insane. Um, I went on with about five different Leeds United shirts on top of each, top of <laughs> each other and just took one Leeds United shirt off every couple of songs. Um, and then we had loads of suites in our riding. We were just there was this like balcony thing, like overlooking the stage, and we just like loads of fans like danced still down there after we'd done our show. And we were just like chucking little bags of sweets out to everybody. That was an amazing night, and all my family were there. And um, yeah, that was an amazing gig. That was a real high. Going to Japan was a. Uh, I mean, we went twice, but they were both really, really unique experiences. Very different world. <clears throat> I really like the culture out there. Very nice, generous, polite, respectful people. And um, yeah, I mean, it's just the the first. It's always the first. Like the the first gig was was pretty special. Um, going going down to sawmills, even though it sort of turned sour, that that was a real achievement. You know, because like I said, Supergrass and Muse and Oasis had, had recorded their de debut albums down there. Um, yeah, and just just that whole time in the beginning when it was just um, just doing stuff around London and it all just starting and you just felt like something was happening. And when it was just me, Rob, Bryn and Dave driving around in Morris. Morris the van, that little red van we used to have, not the second one with with the Holloways on it, but there was one we had before, which used to overheat, and you had to leave the the heating on to let the heat out of the engine, otherwise the engine would overheat, <laughs> and it would be too hot in the van, so you'd have to wind all the windows down. So like me and Rob used to be sat in the back of the van with just like this hot air and all this wind coming in, just going, <gasps> it was mental. But that time was amazing. I remember, I remember playing. Um, a gig at uh, Huddersfield. I can't remember the name of the venue, but I remember the pads. I think I think the pads played as well, or at least Tom and Josh were there. Um, and just things like that stick in your head. Just those early days and those early tours, and it's just been sort of the four of us. That was the most exciting time. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it was. and you know, mentioned the the mess with the record label stuff. I guess that was pretty unavoidable from your point of view but is there anything you would do differently i mean you you make the, the decision based on the information you have a, at the time don't you i mean hindsight's a shit thing <laughs> it's, yeah. it's, it's, it's um 
yeah, you just you just got to go with what you think is right at the time. And you can't really have regrets, can you? I mean, it doesn't help, and it just makes you. I mean, we went with um, we went with our gut a lot, and and sort of trusted people, and went with um, people we thought were friends all the time. We thought that was the best way, but and the way it worked out on on a business level in terms of um, a couple of getting ripped off a little bit with accountants and managers and and stuff like that. You know, we might have been better having a bit more business sense. Um, there are perhaps things we, we, we could have done differently. Um, got a bit more business savvy and people involved with us. Um, that would be the, the main thing. Yeah, fair play. But obviously it's good memories all around, really. Yeah, man. I mean, on the whole, it's, it's you know, 90, 98% great memories. And, you know, it's, it's a shame that it, it had to come to an end, you know, when we sort of see like bands like the Wombats who we did loads of tours with have carried on and a number of times you just sort of think if we'd been with a different label, there's a good chance we'd still be going. But, you know, I'm like I say, I'm in a position where I'm doing, I'm writing and I've got my studio here and I'm going to be putting out some stuff I'm really proud of and excited about and yeah everything happens for a reason and I'm excited and I'm doing music and I think what I'm putting out soon is, is going to be very well received. Um, so yeah, can't be, can't be too disappointed. And where can people follow what you're doing? It's just social media, obviously Instagram and stuff. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've got my, my personal, um, Instagram, which I think is it Alfie Jackson or is it Alfie Holloway? one of those and then there's also uh fledgling tunes is the collaborative thing that i'm doing i mean it's really early days i've only done one release so far but i'm about to do the second one and um i was just on the phone with a lawyer manager guy who was going to get me in touch with people like cooking vinyl about getting involved with it and and marketing properly and stuff because it's just a whole nother skill set like trying to be a writer and then trying to market everything as well so um yeah so it's a lot it's a lot to do so i'm I'm looking at getting a a label involved to get on the pr of it properly and everything and get it out there because the music's good but without the marketing it's it's not it's it's not it's not anything you know it's like the music's the engine but the marketing's the wheels and it's not going to go anywhere without the wheels is it yeah, that's what, like talking to people, um, you know, you just have to be a lot more hands-on as musicians now in terms of promoting yourself. Yeah. Um, and, you know, you the, you see people sort of on Instagram and, and TikTok and everyone's sort of trying to do all these posts and you can tell no one really wants to be doing it. <laughs> but you have to have to be doing it and it's... Yeah, it's weird, man. I mean, you know, it used to be there'd be a sense of mystery. You'd see a band at a venue, you might get a chance to meet them, and it'd be amazing and, and magical. You know, like Christmas Day comes once a year. If it's every day, I think it's you know, it's it's sort of diluting the that sort of magical, charismatic thing that musicians from a distance would have. It's very different now, and it's just been like very warts and all. 
sort of here I am sort of begging every day for you to listen to my music. It's it's not something I like, um, but it is what it is, isn't it? Um, and you kind of got to play the game, which, yeah, for me it's a shame. And I think it's taken time and energy away from people, what they should be spending on just making great music. Well,